Over the past decade or so, we've experienced the rise of mass protests in ways we haven't seen since the 1960s, here in America and around the world. But one thing most of these protests have in common is the typical profile of the protester. They are disenchanted, well-educated, middle-class young people. In other words, they're our kids. The question we need to ask ourselves here is why? Why are our kids, born into the most prosperous time in human history, prepared to throw it all away? Why have they lost trust in every system? In fact, Edelman's trust barometer states that in 2022, we are ensnared in a vicious cycle of distrust. My guest today, Martin Gurry, offers one of the most insightful diagnoses of the crisis of authority we're facing here in America and around the world. According to his book, The Revolt of the Public, humanity has been hit by a tsunami of information in our digital age, and it's turned our world upside down. You are bombarded with information. Basically, everything about the structure of our institutions that gave them legitimacy and authority has been washed away. They changed the relationship between the top and the bottom of society. His perspective has been shaped by three decades as a CIA media analyst, and his research maps out how the information tsunami has hit us all, stripping our emperors of their clothes and leaving our kids' generation feeling lost, angry, and hungry for a sense of purpose. They want something that tells them you were put here for a purpose. Politics is not gonna fulfill that. So you get angry because you're demanding things that cannot possibly be given to you through the means that you're seeking them. As parents in the 21st century, we have no choice but to learn how to navigate the digital deluge of information and help our kids do the same. Martin Gurry. John Pavla. <laughs> My favorite person in the, in the world of economics introduced me to your book, Russ Roberts. And, um, and I remember it because I was talking to him. He was planning to move to Israel and we were catching up and he said, have you listened to the episode with Martin Gurry? I said, no, I haven't gotten to that. Yet. He said, you have to listen to this interview and then you have to go read his book because it is going to blow your mind. Why does your book the revolt of the public blow people's minds. I wrote a book about um, a set of events and, and of, of structural changes in the world, not just in this country, um, that because of where I had stood before, which was at the um, global media section of CIA, I felt like I, was, I, I had stood at a very high place and I could see a little bit farther than most people. I've been called prescient and this and that. It's not true, I never, I never predicted anything. I just was standing up and seeing far. And what I saw far was that somewhere around the year 2000, the structure of information of the human race went completely crazy. Unprecedented changes in volume and I, talk a lot about this, information started doubling every year. 2001 doubled the information set of all previous human history. You could go back to the cave paintings, the dawn of culture, whatever you want. 2002 doubled 2001, and that has pretty much continued. This created what I, I've called the information tsunami. It's of course all, uh, the, the tsunami is, a, is an effect of the digital earthquake. Epicenter what? Uh, somewhere near San Francisco Bay, I guess, you know? <laughs> and, and that tsunami smashed into the standing institutions of modern society everywhere around the world. 
and our institutions have never been the same. And much of everything that has happened since, and the consequences of, of that, starting with the Arab Spring all the way to January 6th, Donald Trump, it's all part of a framework that I think it can be um, explained pretty briefly and is what the, the substance of the book is about. But how did you get there? What was your job? How did you find it? I had the least sexy job in CIA, right? I mean, I didn't have a license to kill, and sexy ladies didn't fall in love with me, except for my wife. Uh, so I basically applied to a, a newspaper advertising. And I ended up in the section of CIA, because I knew several languages, that looked at open media, global open media. And so they had two things that I thought were extraordinary at the time, which was a reach of getting practically all the important media of the world. This was before the information explosion. There wasn't that much information, so it was doable. And also a tremendous translation shop, so that any language that came in that I didn't know, which is most of them, you could get the translation. So that's where it's, it turned out, not having the sexiest job, I had probably the strategically most interesting job for the times that I was living in. Because I, I, I went from the, the trickle of information that was the old, you know, media, mass media world of newspapers and a little bit of television at that time. I mean, people don't realize television in the 1990s was a trickle, a trickle. Most countries had maybe one, one network that, that um, broadcast for a, a few hours a day. So I went from that trickle to this tsunami. Uh, and then, of course, as the tsunami started rolling around the world and different countries were digitizing uh, at different rates, we noticed, and it wasn't just me, we noticed that behind the tsunami there was ever-increasing levels of um, social and political turbulence, I would call it, just, just crazy things happening that were not happening before. Uh, and that's pretty much where I left government and CIA and went out on my own. And of course, question number one was, in my own mind, what's happening? And the book is kind of like the answer to that. So when did you start at CIA? And when did this, like, when did it first start to become clear that there was a change right. I, I was happening? A, I was a Reagan baby. Reagan hired a whole bunch of people. The, the, the CIA had been massively understaffed. So I was part of this tsunami, you might call it, this, this wave of, of people that came in under Ronald Reagan. At the time that I left CIA in 2010, it was, that, that turbulence was visible. But when we pointed it out to the powers that be, they all said, yeah, but it's just people talking online. I mean, this is silly stuff, you know? Who are these people? I mean, and, and for example, in Egypt, there was a very drastic change in the media environment where they were mocking the government. But what I would hear from my masters was, so what are these people gonna do when the secret police comes knocking on the door? Hit them with their laptops. And it, was, it was a bad joke again, but it was, that's what I heard a lot. I left government in 2010. 2011 was Arab Spring. Arab Spring was absolute uh, confirmation that you could take uh, a revolt from the digital universe to the streets of, uh, of Cairo and, and Tahrir Square and overthrow a dictator of 30 years. That, that revolt was entirely planned on Facebook. I experienced a, a form of this, like I think we all did, when Facebook moved out of the university and into like the general public. And the way I experienced this sort of wave was I was working at, at Spike TV in, in Viacom in New York City. And for the most part, people would actually keep their kind of politics to themselves. And then 2006, 7, all of my peers are starting to get Facebook accounts. 
and it's the 20, it's the beginnings of the 2008 election. And people are starting to mouth off about the election on Facebook and you're sitting in your office and someone three offices down from you are post are like mouthing off on Facebook about things that they would never, they wouldn't even say in the, in, you know, in mixed company in the office before that. Like it was really a weird thing. There was this sort of wave of voices that at the small scale was sort of hitting you at the workplace and everywhere else. And it is funny because that it's right around that time. It's like, like with, with the start of that moment, um, that that sort of changed things, changed the relationships we even had with each other, even at that level, even inside of companies. Were you noticing that happening as well? Was that part of like your, like the, the, the way that people were sort of um, engaging with each other, each other was also changing in your perspective or? Well, I mean, you have to ask yourself, what the heck was that? Okay, it wasn't the New York Times publishing a newspaper 100,000 times bigger than before. And it wasn't CNN doing, you know, 48 hours a day of broadcasting. It was people mouthing off. The digital uh, platforms empowered the public to voice their opinions in a way that had never been possible before. And this public, in the form of the tsunami, then, of course, battered into these institutions uh, and has been, that, that have been in a state of collapse and crisis anyway, a state of crisis ever since. So of course it changed relationships, it changed everything. It changed uh, the relationship between the top and the bottom of society in the olden days. If I'm a president, I'm so far away from you that you can't even barely see me unless I choose for you to see me, all right? And I will never hear you. I can, I can say, John, this is what reality is all about. And you're sitting there going, no, it's not. But you're yelling at your TV set, right? I mean, nobody's hearing you. Now, if you are a person on top of a, an institution, a president, for example, you hear this roar of voices that are t basically calling you any name of the book, mouthing off and saying, you're wrong about this, you're wrong about that, you lied about this, you lied about that. By the way, you made this prediction, and where is it? Remember when you said that, and now you're doing the opposite? So being an elite has gone from being a very nice, isolated, you know, privileged position to being sort of nightmarish. The elites don't like it. We sort of have this idealized version of America, which is the 1950s. There's sort of this notion, I think almost universally, for lots of different reasons, that, that like 1950s America is sort of the, the peak of American greatness. Part of that, time period is also we had like three broadcast networks and like two newspapers of record when Walter Cronkite said and that's the way it is did people buy it did they believe it yeah that's a good question what else could they do okay so it was a half an hour broadcast all right of which um say five minutes were commercials and so you had and it was visual so it was not like him talking for half an hour it was these visual stories of so you had time for maybe three stories, right? So we have this world full of billions of people and you get three stories and that's the way it is. Some of us actually said, I wonder if there's something else going on in the world that I didn't hear from Walter today, okay? But I think, again, we, there was no alternative information source. It's not that you necessarily said, well, that's, of course that's all there is, Walter told me so. It's that we didn't know what was going on unless we were told by some source like Walter Cronkite or the New York Times. And I, honestly, at that time, it was the front page of the New York Times. 
set the information agenda. And Walter Cronkite and all his, all, all the other anchor people, all the, all the broadcast news of all the three of them at the time, basically they did the front page of the New York Times. So a very, very narrow world, everybody agreeing what was important, which was what was important, by the way, to the presidents and uh, the political elites. So they were all talking the same talk, and if you happen to be somebody who thought somebody, something else was important to you, art, philosophy, technology, any number of things that today we think are very important, yeah. didn't get discussed. Really feels in a way like 2020 and bleeding into this year are like a kind of, an a kind of like echo of the late 60s. We've got strife and protests in the streets and you know there was the the Hong Kong virus was happening at Woodstock and then in the 1960s and now we got COVID. How was like the night that moment that late 60s the civil civil rights era how did information flow then? I think the 1960s was the, the, the McLuhan era the television era right so if you wanted to um stir up a revolt, you had to find a camera. And, but then you had to appeal to the institutions, right? To the news, to the Walter Cronkite and their subsidiaries in the world and say, well, I am doing something out here that's worth your attention, bringing a camera. So once you had a camera put in front of you, you became something, right? So if you were a, a civil rights protester and you got yourself beat up by a, a police thug in Selma, Alabama, the rest of the nation is watching that in horror, right? So you may be beating it up if you're have the courage to allow that to happen to yourself, you're making a gigantic persuasive point that these laws are tremendously unjust, okay? Um, if you're a hippy-dippy young person, which is my, my honor of having been back in the days when I had hair and I had a lot of it, you wanted to show how different you were from society. Just you wore these freakish things and, you, and, and what the cameras came to you for was, look at these people, they're like some, some strange Aboriginal tribe that happened to be your children, you know? <laughs> so you could make a point visually in front of a camera, but you still had to appeal to the institutions that held those cameras and many, many things that were going on at the time didn't have either the wherewithal or they were, they were not appealing to, to um, the news or to the elites. Uh, and so they, they occurred in darkness. We don't remember them, all right? So that, that, I think the difference was between then and now is that the public then could summon the, the, the means of information, the means of communication to them under certain conditions. Today, the public commands the strategic heights over the information landscape, all right? And, and can, when it erupts, completely confound and confuse the elites who don't know who, the, who they are, where they come from, what, how are they communicating, how, how are they planning this, is it even planned, who are these people, who are their leaders, what are, they, what are their programs, what do they want, all right? The average person sees your book and says, okay, the revolt of the public, oh yeah, there's protests out there, people are, the people, the people's will, the people are making their voice heard. Is that what you're talking about? It's not the people. The people is a category in political philosophy. People don't exist. It's not uh, the masses. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, the people don't exist. What, no. what do you mean by that? That's a big thing to say. <laughs> what does that mean? The people is a philosophical category. And as a philosophical category, you can say the, the legitimacy of the U.S. government depends on the will of the people. The will of the people is, is affected through, say, elections and jury trials, and judicial decisions, and so forth. All these are moments of legitimacy that, that are conferred by the statement, it's the will of the people. But if, it, if you were then to say, okay, 
bring the people into this room, there is no such thing. There is no such animal as the people. It's a category, it's a philosophical category. So, and by the way, okay, if you want to push it a little bit. Yeah. So, since the will of the people is what legitimizes. The Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, we the people, every aspect of democracy, every little group, every cranky individual who wants to legitimize whatever thesis they're pushing, they'll say, well, I represent the people. And okay, sometimes maybe they do, sometimes maybe they don't, but, but only in the sense of a philosophical uh, entity, not a real human entity. What I'm hearing you say is that that is just that. It is, it is sort of an abstract ideal. Well, ask yourself, why was those three words put into that document? We the people of the United States of America. Why was that? And that was actually a fundamental moment in American history that it wasn't the states. We the states of the United States of America. In other words, we were not governed. The legitimacy was not conferred upon this constitution by, by the units of the states. It was conferred by the total population of the United States of America. So we the people was a very hard fought uh, three words that thank goodness the, the people who advocated that one. And, and so, Together, we can be said to be the people, and we're not the states. That what confers legitimacy, and I think that's, that was fundamentally, philosophically, and morally a, a, a wise move, is, is, is the population, the citizenry, that confers upon all these institutions its, its you know, powers and, and, and its rights to kind of taxes and, and arrest us and make laws and so forth. Um, so, I mean, I'm not trying to downplay the people. I'm just telling you the people as a thing I, I don't believe exists. So if the public in the revolt of the public is not referring to this widely sort of this sort of trope of, of the people, what, who is the public then? I mean, my definition goes back to Walter Lippmann. And so he thought the public <laughs> is only those individuals who are interested in what he called a particular affair. In other words, something erupts, somebody becomes interested in it, somebody's activated to do something about it. So basically, it's not, the public is not an institution. It, it can't make laws, it can't arrest you for, for you know, whatever reason. It comes to being around an affair, a particular thing, an event or a cause, and it usually comes to an end uh, when that cause dissipates in some sense or another. So it's got a limited life expectancy. For example, in the Tahrir Square, people gathered against the dictator Hosni Mubarak. Hosni Mubarak left, and those people just dissipated. It's as if they hadn't been, all right? Occupy Wall Street, gathered together, occupied several places around America, Zagori Park. A few months passed by, they dissipated. You know, whatever happened, happened and now they're gone. And each one of these revolts begins online. And each one of these groups has the characteristics of an online group. And anybody who's been online knows what that is. It means ferociously egalitarian, ferociously egalitarian. Nobody stands out and whoever thinks of standing out a little bit gets immediately, you know, just attacked. Non-programmatic, it means that every one of these groups are against something, usually just the established order, right? And if you were to press them, what are they for? They would disintegrate into hostile you know, war bands saying, well, I'm for this, I'm for that. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a libertarian, I'm an anarchist, I'm a socialist, I'm a conservative, but we all are against some, some established thing 
like the Spanish government with the indignados, like Mubarak with, with the Terrier Square, um, like capitalism for Occupy Wall Street. They're against that. But you ask them, what would you put in its place? And it's not like the individuals don't have answers, but there's no group answer. There's no organized group answer. There's no organized group ideology. There's no organized group leaders, and none of them. And that's a huge difference from 20th century radicalism, for example. None of them aspire to power. None of them are saying, what we're here for is to take over the government, or take over the city government, or take over you know, our American finance and Wall Street. They're just basically saying somebody should do something about this. We're very much against it. In the 60s, you have Martin Luther King as the, I think, probably the, the most important and perhaps the most effective leader of a, of a movement to make major change. Contrast what's happening with the, the civil rights movement under Martin Luther King and these protest movements today that, that you're trying to work through and that have been changed by this tsunami of information. So, like, what's the difference here? Martin Luther King probably never could put a million people on the streets. Probably the largest crowd he ever got was that speech at the mall, which was, I think, a, a transformational event because he was a black leader, usually with a black audience. But at the mall, you could just see there were white faces predominated. This was not a black cause, it was an American cause, all right? He confronted a system of laws, and I am old enough that I experienced them in, in my state of Virginia, that were fundamentally unjust. So he confronted that world, and he had a positive program. His positive program was, I want these people over here to live just like these other people over there. That was very positive. That's what the Civil Rights Act actually fundamentally achieved, was, uh, I mean, what happened in Virginia was astonishing, the speed that it happened, right? It's like all the housing barriers went away. So he had a very positive uh, agenda, and I think achieved it, achieved it, and I think all of us owe him a gigantic debt because that was that was a sin against humanity, I think, what was going on in Virginia and other places. Yeah, 100%. So Black Lives Matter. I'm going to ask you the Andrew Cuomo questions. I, I, I love to trot out this quote. I probably do it too much, but I'll do it again anyway, which was Andrew Cuomo, former disgraced now governor of uh, New York State, confronting the protesters that had just kind of devastated midtown Manhattan said, you don't have to protest anymore. You won. And he said it twice. You won. And then he gets kind of a perplexed look on his face. He goes, so, so what do you want? <laughs> and of course, they booed and they cussed him and they wanted to go away and die. That's what they want, right? <laughs> so uh, the question is, I'm going to ask, I'm gonna ask the Andrew Cuomo question. What did they want? What do you think they wanted? You can make it up. And of course, if you are a journalist or a thinker or an academic or whatever, this is what these people want. But give me the words in their mouths as they were out in the streets saying, what is it that they want? That it's not a slogan. Defund the police is a slogan, by the way. It's not a program. It's a slogan. So give me something that is not a slogan. And they are great because one thing that the internet is great at is slogans. Clever slogans. I mean, it's like a slogan machine and a meme machine, right? So, um, so all those slogans are wonderful. But by defund the police, what do you mean? What do you mean? So I'm asking you, what did they want? I mean, I've grappled with this, and I, th the, I, I can't presume to speak for folks that took to the streets. I think that in the face of what happened with George Floyd, there was certainly um, 
just outrage right. about that. Anger, that's for sure. And that it was because it was grotesque and it was and it fit a pattern of expectation about the relationship between the police and African Americans in America, whether that's true statistically or otherwise or not is you know not relevant in there's a certain a sense. There's a history there, as we just said. Yeah, and 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 it's certainly true historically and there's it's a like, history there. Yeah. It, and so I think there was a um, there was a desire to, and I think there remains a desire to achieve something like perfect equality, something like a complete cleaning away of the remnants, even the memories of the injustice of the past and sort of create a kind of year zero new world that is free from racial injustice. I think that is the desire I think the challenge is, yeah, what does it mean to do that? Like Martin Luther King had Jim Crow's Jim Crow laws were actually laws on the books in the states saying you can't come. I can't. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm going to assume that what you say is correct. I'm not sure that I believe it, by the way, because I never heard those words come from anybody's mouth <laughs> during those protests. Right? You can't just say you want utopia and not come up with a program, a plan, and a map. So where is utopia? What is utopia? What are the steps that get us there? What are the initial steps? Just tell me the first three steps I need to do to go in the direction you want me to. The intellectual foundations of Black Lives Matter, uh, where as for every one of these protests, I don't want to pick on them either, uh, were very chaotic. What protest movements match the pattern that you identified in your analysis? So start with Tahrir Square and the Arab Spring and kind of walk me up to today. In the year 2019 alone, there were 25 major street insurgencies, all right? We would be here all day and all night okay. if we started talking about that. But the framework begins with the Arab Spring and that pattern is repeated. The Tahrir Square crowd is exactly like the Black Lives Matter crowd, composed of very disparate elements that if you brought them together and said, what is it that you want? You asked them the Andrew Cuomo question, they were fighting with each other. But that didn't matter, because number one, they could organize online, and number two, they were unified by what they were against, and they loathed the dictatorship of Hosni Mubarak, all right? So they were completely unified about that, and that's all they really cared about. So that crowd that was very disparate, and that if you had asked them, what do you want, would have started fighting with each other, was in fact unified online, and unified at Tahrir Square by the thing that they loathe, Mubarak. Very shortly after that, that same year of 2011, you have the indignados in Spain. Indignados means the outraged ones. They really weren't outraged, by the way, when you, they were very witty. They, they were the wittiest of all these protests. They're my favorite. If I had to have a pet protest, that would be the one, okay? Uh, they were very witty and had catchy slogans, again, as always. Um, and they were just against the system. And they made a very broad statement of, we're not right, we're not left, all right? They were actually kind of lefty, but these things have, very, very faint ideological uh, roots in the sense of they're, they're not structured by an ideology. And they very consciously said, most of us are non-political even, you know, that we, we just hate the system. So what, where do you go from there, right? Um, then you have that same year, 2011, Occupy Wall Street. They were unified by their hatred of capitalism, okay? And, and Occupy Wall Street is 
somewhat of like a, a younger cousin to the Indignados, isn't, isn't it not? Yeah, the Occupy system idea, the Indignados were watching the Arab Spring and they very consciously, very consciously modeled themselves on Tahrir Square. So they occupied the Plaza del Sol and of course the Occupy people over here very consciously modeled themselves on the Indignados and, and occupied you know, Sakoni Square and Sakoni Park, I mean, and they basically were against capitalism. What did they want to do about capitalism? You, probably, you could, yeah, yeah, you could ask and you would get 20 different questions. They yeah. really were a very disparate crowd. A lot of the time, these protests are, are economic reasons are ascribed to them, all right? You have to understand these are very eye-catching protests. They catch the elites totally by surprise. Every last one of them surprised the elites, surprised the media elites, surprised the political elites. They'll go, who are these people? Where do they come from? They're not institutional players. They come from nowhere. They are people from nowhere institutionally. So then layers of, of um, interpretation are put on top of that. Of course, for some reason today, our favorite interpretation for everything is economic. I would push back on that on, on two counts. This has happened, these kind of revolts have happened in places like Sudan, who are the poorest countries on earth, and they have happened in countries like France, which is one of the wealthiest countries on earth, right? Plus, when you look at the people who are actually on the streets versus the, 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 the brains that are trying to interpret what's going on and giving you economic interpretations, um, those people are not marginal people. They're not either economically marginal, they're not racially marginal, they're not religiously marginal. They tend to be, if you want the truth, they tend to be college-educated, young, and either affluent or in the expectation of affluence that every mainstream educated person has, right? You have to posit a tremendous anger in the public at all times. And then these events happened, like a couple of times, like in Chile and like in France, it's been a couple of pennies added to tax, in one case on diesel fuel, in the other case uh, on uh, subway rides. And you have these eruptions that are completely right. disproportionate to the cause. So that, that gives you a sense that that's not really a cause, it's just a trigger. You know, it's like if, if, if this is a gigantic vat of gasoline and uh, I throw a match in there, um, the match isn't the cause. The fact that there is this gigantic uh, uh, set of explosive material that can blow up and somebody's gonna do a spark at some point and it's gonna blow. And that makes these, um, these uh, revolts on, on the one hand very unpredictable. You never know where it's gonna come next. So I kept being asked, why hasn't it happened here? Why hasn't it happened there? And I go, these things are random, who, who knows? And then very surprising to the elites in charge who are going like, I just raised a two penny tax and they're, you know, they're burning banks in Paris and they're defacing the Arc de Triomphe. And where's the proportion to that, right? Well, you have, to, you have to realize the yellow vests have been yelling and screaming on Facebook for a year. They have been incubating on, on Facebook on what they called group de colère, if you pardon my French, anger groups. That's what they called it, right? <laughs> so all they did was what you, you said, mouthing off. You know, they were mouthing off at each other inside these Facebook groups. A year before that, that two penny tax or whatever it was on diesel, but basically threw them out into the streets. There's several examples that are striking that about what you're talking about, right? So the the one that you mentioned in the book is Israel. So mm -hmm. Israel is one of the most educated, high income countries on planet Earth. And there's a massive protest 
in 2011 huh? over over what? Well, this young woman, very attractive, very um, video savvy. She was a film editor. Um, basically, the cost of her apartment went up such that she couldn't really stay where she was. And the idea of having to move farther from her place of work outraged her. And she said on Facebook, as always, everybody who wants to protest the, the, the cost of housing in Tel Aviv, um, come to Rothschild Boulevard, and we'll set up a tent, tent city there. This began literally the most gigantic set of demonstrations in the history of Israel, right? Over, over rent in Tel Aviv. Over one young woman's idea that she didn't want to move, you know, a couple of miles off farther from her. Uh, and she belonged to the Ashkenazi elite of Tel Aviv. Her parents were very wealthy. The whole revolt was an Ashkenazi elite revolt. They were the golden youth of Israel rebelling against the system that had made them the golden youth, right? And one, one participant said, what we're after is patricide. We're trying to commit patricide. In other words, the, the, country, the country that created them, you know, that system that made them, they, they want to kill that system. Now, why would they say the killing of your father, do you think? You were, this is Dad Saves America, so I'm like, it's offending my senses here. It's like, the rent is high, I want to kill my father. <laughs> I think it's because it, it's a sense that, that uh, the state in Israel is not a mommy state, it's a daddy state. They're, they're, they're pushing us around, right? They're, they're making us walk three miles or, or take, take a car three miles to, to our place of work. I don't know. I was not inside their heads, <laughs> but the words were spoken. One of them called it a patricide. It tells you they wanted to really kill that system as a gesture, as a pose. How much they really wanted to do that is a serious question that I, I can't say I can answer in any of those demonstrations. I can tell you they wanted, in Terrier Square, they wanted Mubarak gone, all right? But in all the democratic countries, uh, the yellow vests, what do they want? Who knows, you know? How seriously do they want to abolish capitalism in, in, in Sakoti Park? I have no answer for that. It's a pose, and maybe it's a sincere pose. I always tend to assume sincerity. I think it's safe that way. But the thing seems preposterous in, 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 the, in the face of it, right? One of the things that you described that I think also pl plays out in that Israeli instance in an interesting way is the Cuomo problem. The, all right, you, you, you have our attention. What do you want? So how does that play out? In this Israel. Was, this was great because they, this was Netanyahu, and he, everybody knew that the revolt was essentially had a lefty flavor. Netanyahu, of course, is, is of the right. Um, and so this was a problem for him. And he was, of all the prime ministers, presidents, heads of state that have had these eruptions from below, the savviest, all right? He basically created a commission, I forget the name of the of the, the, the person that headed it, but it was a, not a, a partisan person, it was a technical person. And he said, go forth and talk to these people, find out what they want. Well, the first answer from the protesters is, we're not gonna talk to you. But half of them would not uh, talk to them. The half that would talk to them when a set of proposals was made, for example, to subsidize housing in, in Tel Aviv, it was unacceptably you know, meager or whatever. But that commission, did come up with a set of proposals that went very much against Netanyahu's green. He was a free enterprise guy. These were all kind of like welfare state, but he said, let's do it. And they did it. And 
the protest began to run out of steam at that point. Is that proof that it works or that it or that there was no. a I mean <laughs> there were not none of the protesters, not the ones who wouldn't talk to the governments, not the ones that did talk to the governments, thought that they had accomplished what they wanted. So then why does it lose steam if it isn't like if it isn't the, you know, we got change and you know well, that, I don't, I, you know, we must do something, this is something, we do this, and the protesters say, you did it, and there, what, what's happening then? There are two things that happen, okay? Number one, you've been living in a tent city for two months, all right? You do that for a while and see how much longer you want to do it. Number two, initially, because you were such a cloudy thing, there were all these people who said, oh, you're about this, you're about that, and, and consequently, there would be polls taken of the Israeli population saying 80% of the public supports the, uh, the tent city protests in Russia Boulevard. That's why, by the way, Netanyahu felt he had to act. Well, Netanyahu acted. I think the vast majority of the Israelis, you know, the, the silent public, not the public in the street, thought that was reasonable. And the polls started to go against, because the more that they, they become intractable, people are gonna start to walk away from that and they, they peter out. They tend to peter out in the cold weather, and they did. That also happened with the yellow jackets in France, right? Because there was the, this was, um, if I remember correctly, it was Macron and they repealed the tax. Oh yeah. So, so well, no, what but, happens there? Cause that... no, 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 no. But that, that's not the way it works. That is not, the way it works. In many cases, Chile is one and, and um, France is another. In many cases, almost immediately, the government, that, the government said, geez, okay, you, you got what you want. The public, as was the case in Israel, does not take yes for an answer. Because in essence, it, it's, its quarrel is, is, is almost cosmic, right? It's destruction of the system. So that any measure, since you are not proposing measures yourself, you have no programs that you want implemented yourself, any proposals for programs that, that uh, the elites say or that the government says, that we're doing this to appease you, you just go, no. Other than the connectivity, what else about the tsunami of information makes this something that's going to happen? Is that the whole story? It's just like there are, there's a lot of angry people out there and now there's a tool to get them together? Well, there's obviously two sides to the story. I would say it's more than bringing people together. It's that these groups, and starting with Tahrir Square in 2011 and all the way to January 6th and that bizarre um, protest and the, 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 the sacking of the Capitol building, all the way, I would say, share in, um, across countries, across cultures, an enormous number of similar characteristics. They appear suddenly, they have no programs they're advocating, they have no ideology that binds them together, they have no leaders, they're very much anti-leader, they're, they're anti-organizations, no party of, of the revolt of the public, and they are unified entirely by that which they're against, and, and feel they feel totally not compelled to provide an alternative. In other words, they want to bash the established order, without providing an alternative, side one. Side two is our institutions, which we haven't talked about. Our institutions were our legacy of the 20th century, our legacy of that time I, I mentioned earlier when there was a trickle of information. Our institutions were founded and were legitimized and had authority because in the 20th century, they were our only sources of information. What do you mean by institution? Okay. You know, my, my grandfather had, has a saying, 
used to have the saying, you know, marriage is a great institution if you like institutions, which is a... And that's a good point. I don't mean that kind of institution. I mean formal hierarchies. Okay. All right, that's it. Started with government, moved to business, moved to media, moved to the academy. So Harvard is an organization, is an institution. Right. Entertainment, Hollywood is an institution. So these are, and they're all very similar, much like the public has similar characteristics. These institutions share very similar characteristics. There's a boss at the top, there's a little layer beneath them, and then there's this big pyramid below. But the people at the very bottom feel like by belonging to this institution, they are superior to those who are outside of it, right? They, they can do things, they have an inside knowledge that the people outside the institutions lack. And by the way, that they had you know, sweated blood to even have any kind of position inside these institutions. They have jump, jumped through hoops, they have gone through graduate school, PhDs, they have become experts in this, experts in that. And so they feel like anybody who speaks on their turf, who hasn't done all of that, is a trespasser and ought to be squelched right away because you don't belong here. I got out of film school and um, got started working at MTV and worked my way up inside of Viacom. And, the, and it cert, that, that was certainly the case inside you know, Viacom's one of the four or five major institutions of entertainment, right? Giant conglomerate. Um, right, it's right adjacent to all the ad agencies, Madison Avenue. And in all these cases, that entry point at the bottom, you know, you, we'd say you're paying your dues. It sucked. <laughs> you know, right. you come in, you exactly paid right. nothing. You were effectively sort of hazed by the sheer volume of work. And, but you had this, but you got in. Yes. And when you'd go talk to people who, you might be you might be a production assistant like I was, like not making up enough money to pay your rent in Queens. But if you talk to somebody who thought it was cool, it's like, how did you get that job? You were the inside. Oh, how did you get in there? Oh my gosh, this is amazing. You work at a TV network. So I I get that. That makes I totally get that. That sort of that inside the institution feeling right. is a good feeling. There is a um sort of Darwinian process, right? The bottom layers of people who don't go up are people who are happy to be, you know, basically hazed every day because they're just inside and and the top layers are people who are driven to be, you know, alpha alpha persons. But in the 20th century, that model was the only model of, of basically organizing humanity, right? It's hierarchy. Today, with the digital platforms, we have the network. Uh, and and uh, Neil Ferguson has a very interesting book in which he compares the two, I recommend that. Um, but essentially, the public is networked, all right? And it comes in at an angle that, that uh, uh, the, the hierarchies can't comprehend. I mean, it's, it's a very nonlinear, non-straightforward, there aren't any set battles. Even when they're protesting in the streets, it feels like they're going like this, you know? The elites who are hierarchical are considering the public in hierarchical and programmatic terms. The public is looking at the elites in completely power relation, I want to smash you because you are, you are the thing that makes life miserable, and not in programmatic terms. So uh, there's absolute lack of congruence. They don't speak the same language, all right? However, being completely swept by the tsunami, the institutions are basically stripped naked. The people, the elites who are at the top, who in the 20th century had the best life in the universe because they were at the top. And remember how I told you, you were at that distance from me and you couldn't ever see me, but I kind of could talk to you and you couldn't talk to me. And suddenly 
everything that you do that is wrong, anything that the people dislike, you're hearing this uproar of, of negation coming from the public all the time. And I think it has paralyzed our institutions. Uh, they, they, they are not adequate to the information moment. In other words, institutions are 20th century institutions. The digital world has made them seem very inadequate, but the people who run them, by God, I like the 20th century, right? They are, they are re essentially reactionaries. The elites today, and I think many of them are boomers, so they're reactionary for the same reason that I would be a reactionary, although I hope I'm not, is because I lived in the 20th century. Joe Biden, for example, spent the vast majority of his life in the 20th century. So um, you have this desire by the people who, who run the institution not to reconfigure the institutions to fit the digital age, but somehow reconfigure the public to be much more like the 20th century. And that's where we are today. It's like the FDR era. Like I get the fireside chat. I can get on, I speak into the radio and everyone hears me and nobody can talk back because it's a one way. Yeah. Lay out for me why that matters so much. Essentially, the, 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 the 20th century was an information parched era. It didn't know that about itself at the time because it didn't know there was going to be a tsunami at the end of it. But it, looking back, it was very, very parched. Those who possessed uh, information, and those were the institutions, had authority. And by authority, I mean when they spoke, when Walter Cronkite spoke, when the New York Times published a newspaper, people accepted that. You know, it's the New York Times, it's Walter Cronkite. Whether you kind of say, well, it's 100% true or not, where are your sources for anything other, right? The digital era is, a, it, is a, the opposite of parched information environment. It's flooded. You are bombarded with information. So basically everything about uh, the structure of our institutions that gave them legitimacy and authority has been washed away. So the public is looking at this institution instead of saying, okay, I have misgivings about what you said, but what do I know? You're saying, oh no, look at all this other stuff. You're lying, and, 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 and I think there's a kind of an immediate trigger from, you know, I don't agree to there must be liars, to they're corrupt. And then of course, the worst of the elites, and there's all kinds of elites, and our class, our elite class at the moment is not the best that we have ever had, I think, <laughs> I think. But, but I mean, many of them are, are well-meaning and trying to yeah. do right by their lights. But unfortunately, it's people who get caught, you know, fondling women or worse. They, they get caught, um, you know, saying things that are outrageously condescending, you know, calling people deplorables, you know. Uh, those are the ones that in the public's mind seem to define what being an elite is. But they're a terrible combination of ineffectiveness and smugness, you know. How do you get to be both those things? I'm not really sure. But they are not effective in dealing with the public, and yet they're morally superior to the public. So when the public says, I want to talk about these subjects like immigration, you're a racist. Shut up, you know. It's not a conversation. It's a moral judgment, right? So the public, of course, then, you know, what do they do? Oh, look, there's this very strange-looking man over here. This kind of a, this peacock of a person over here. His name is Trump. He's clearly not one of them, doesn't talk like them, doesn't look like them, doesn't sound like them, nothing like them. I'm going to vote for him. So Trump is not a cause. Trump is an effect. Trump was a club in the hands of the public. And if he had stopped bashing the swamp, they would have abandoned him completely. And he knew it, and so he couldn't. I think it's important to see that the, the role of the public is not just a question of people protesting in the streets. It often influences elections 
when a political leader can somehow embody the qualities that the public thinks are going to bash that establishment. And the way it seems to manifest itself is by these people being extremely eccentric and bizarre. Like, New York had a, had a long relationship with Trump, New Yorkers. And so there's like a, there was, a, there was something particular and extra weird. Well, Even think, above and beyond how boisterous and crazy he is and, and, and all of it. Well, and, and I think it was his training ground, right? Because he played the media. I mean, whatever else he was, he played the media. He learned to do that in New York. And if you, you read The Art of the Deal, as some of us have been forced to do, being analysts, you know, uh, he specifies it. He says it. He said, you have to create controversy or the media won't pay any attention. And he was talking about his New York years and, and the, the, the big media being in New York. He knew he had to generate big controversy to get their attention. One of the things that you lay out in the book that is such a striking contrast between the, the world we live in now, this world that has been sort of drowned by the tsunami of information, and the parched information world, is the Bay of Pigs right. incident with JFK. So to set the stage, and you're a Cuban-American, you're a Cuban immigrant, so it's especially The poignant. Bay of Pigs happened on my birthday. <laughs> So this is, so here you have this president who, who himself was, I think could be, was considered like a kind of youthful, disruptive, even though he's coming from a dynastic family, like, right? That JFK was this young Catholic president. And here we have this event. So just lay out what, for, for somebody that doesn't even know about the, what the Bay of Pigs was. Yeah. What was this, what happened, and what does it tell us about that era? The setting the stage for Kennedy, the way I would frame that at the time, people looking at it was, okay, we had had Eisenhower. And Eisenhower won the war in Europe. Okay, the presidency was kind of like a step down for him, all right? He was a man who dealt with big events. Everybody had massive confidence in him. Kennedy, remember his speech, the torch has been passed to a new generation, right? So he was uh, that greatest generation and had been a PD boat captain, you know, a, a fairly low-level person in that war, and he was still very youthful at the time. So the concern was, we've gone for this massive experience, you know, tremendously effective leader, this young guy. So does he know what he's doing? That's the question, right? And honestly, he made several mistakes, not to get into the details, leading up to the Bay of Pigs, that led to a complete disaster. In, 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 uh, the, the, the three days after that, that uh, event began, uh, the Castro forces had everything under control in Cuba. It was an invasion, a little invasion by like 3,000 people. I expected 3,000 people to overthrow a government. I'm not even sure, okay? Kennedy thought to himself, this is it. I'm never going to get reelected. I mean, it was into the, deep into his 100 first days where opinions settle on, on precedents. And in a press interview, he, on the one hand, said, the United States was not involved in this. These were Cuban patriots, and we, we cheer them, and we're sorry that they lost. Uh, on the other hand, if responsibility were to lie anywhere, he said, it would lie with me. I'm the responsible person. And there was a sense that, okay, he's messed up, but he's done the right thing. Show me a politician right, right. Today, I... today that's going to say that, right? Stand up and say, yeah, this was my policy, and I'm responsible for it when it's a big mess, okay? His popularity began as, as uh, um, the Bay of Pigs rolled out in the 70s, around 70%, the, the positive approval. At the end of the Bay of Pigs, it's in all these interviews and speeches, it was 80%. It went up by 
by 10 points. All right. So the American people at that time felt, you know, we were in a Cold War. This guy had owned up to his mistakes. He represents us in this Cold War. We don't want him to fail. <laughs> we want to, now that he's in trouble, he needs our support. And I think a lot of us just felt like, yeah, we're behind him. You know, pick up and, and keep going, you know. Whereas my comparison to that was uh, Barack Obama and the stimulus bill that, that he promised. The stimulus bill was a bit of a disaster in terms of promises and what it actually delivered. But that's not the point, because the Tea Party erupted before the bill had even been passed, all right? So there was a right. revolt of the public against that initiative before it even had passed. So with Kennedy, you have failure, actual failure and support. With Obama, you have, well, I'm going to do this thing, but you don't even know whether it's going to work or not, and you have revolt. That's the difference between then and now. When I think about what, how to think about the past and the JFK era versus today, I think one of the things that's interesting is as we sit, you know, we, we've just been through the, the presidency of Donald Trump and he's a scrambler of a character um, as we've kind of touched on a little bit. But there's things that JFK got away with that are as sort of repulsive as, as a lot of Trump's behavior. You know, JFK was like a horrible womanizer and, uh, you know, did things that would be completely like reprehensible. And the press knew it, just like they knew that he was lying about Bay of Pigs and that he had nothing to do with it and the US government had nothing to do with it. Uh, but somehow that was hidden then and it all comes out now. Isn't now better? Isn't it better to know that? these people are kind of gross? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't deal in better and worse. I deal in different, okay? So in, in the JFK era, there was a very clearly center stage. Now, before you go to center stage, you get your makeup on, you rehearse your lines, maybe you joke around, you go to center stage and you deliver your lines very formally, very uh, effectively. Then you go backstage and you've done your job. There we start sparting, the beers come out, people start doing weird things, you know. Well, <laughs> he, he was of an era when all that really was portrayed was a center stage moment. Our era, there is no, no center stage. The backstage, has become center stage. So it's a party atmosphere, right? The, the couple over here, they're kissing, and somebody here, they're punching out on each other, and somebody here is yelling about politics, and that's center stage. So Trump is a creature of that environment, and he stirred that pot, all right? I actually think they were very different people. JFK, everything he did had to do with his understanding that it was what he did on center stage that mattered. Once you left that, it didn't exist for the public. No. Trump was a creature, one of the first, probably the first major politician to realize, no, 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 everything is, everything is out of the open. Everything I do or say as a major figure is gonna be found out in the end. So what the hell? Might as well give him something to write about, right? <laughs> so in fact, he, would, he sought controversy, he sought scandal. He, his shtick was, he was such a gigantic media, both um, digital and, and mass media uh, obsession that basically there could be no other politician that could, who could raise a, a voice. In, uh, he, they were in the shadow, right? Just cast a shadow over American politics. 
Um, and he did that by just, this is the party atmosphere. Everything is backstage. Everything goes. I've done gross things. I'm going to do more gross things. I'm going to say stupid things. Uh, doesn't matter. That's how I get attention. That's how I control the information sphere, which he did for about three years until COVID. So I asked you at the start of our conversation, you know, why do people, why do you think people just connect to the thesis of your book? Uh, what connected it for me was that when I read it several years ago, it was still in the middle of the Trump presidency. And here you are laying out a just empirical case that this thing that we're experiencing in the United States with Trump, this sort of character that's bashing the elite, even though he's a, as elite as one could get on paper, um, that he's not some special aberrant, even though he is in certain respects, but in terms of what he represents for the world and for the country, he's just a symptom of this information tsunami, that the tsunami has flown through, pulled all of our, our, our bathing suits off, and we're all naked and here he is running around and he's perfectly comfortable to be naked while the rest of us are still trying to grapple with it and that that's what it was that he that that, that to me was the thing about the the what the revolt of the public means it means that we aren't defined by this singular person that this is he's just one of many things if it wasn't him that our time would still be totally weird, yes. and it's going to continue to be weird long after he starts to recede into the past. The fundamental um, event of our moment is a conflict which is, has nothing to do with Trump, except he, he, he served it to fame and fortune, right? A conflict between, on the one hand, the public, and we've talked about them, and the elites who manage the institutions. And that conflict manifests itself somewhat differently in every moment, and every occasion, every election, every protest, but has certain very defined characteristics. And it's going to determine uh, the politics, I think, of every country, uh, as long as we're being battered by the tsunami. How does the information age uh, this sort of information tsunami, what role does it play in the rise of, like, I guess we'll say, identity politics? Because I think that's something that's a big part of what we're grappling with. And, and I think Trump also played a role, in, in, if, if in nothing else, just maybe instigating a reaction in the yeah. world, this world of identity politics. H how do you think about this? Okay, so there's a couple of ways to think about it, and Trump definitely did play a part. I think on the one hand, um, it's against, right? The cult of identity says there are these categories of oppressed people, and what is the oppressing factor is the system, and the system is usually managed by you know, white males or some version of that, right? So it is a very typical emanation of the revolt of the, of the public. I think a lot of the ferocity, and I call it a cult for a reason. It's not, it's not a metaphor. I actually think it, it, it plays a kind of a pseudo-religious role in people's lives. Because a lot of the people who are involved in this, the real zealots of identity, who are very young, are, are people who are looking for whatever human has always sought, which is meaning in their lives. They, they want something that tells them you were put here for a purpose, and that purpose is important, so you are important, right? In the old days, there were old, venerable institutions 
that provided, basically their function was meaning creation, right? Religion, community, you would, you know, silly things like the Shriners or, or the Chambers of Commerce, that would place you in a setting where you were an important person in a, in a, in a certain uh, context. And above all, of course, the family, which gave you the audience. I mean, the, the, being Cuban, you know, my extended family I have always felt was the audience to my life. And when I was sad, they cried for me. And, and when I succeeded, they applauded me. And so I never felt lonely, right? You go through what's been happening in that younger, what I call the Zoomer generation, who are the most fanatical uh, believers in identity. Well, I mean, religion is, is being abandoned. Community, you're gonna join a chamber of commerce? I don't think so, the Shriners are dying. And then even the family though is, is withering away in, in many instances, or they're divided, you know, there's divorced homes and so forth. So, and fewer children. So it means that that gigantic Cuban family that I had is less and less likely to be encountered. So you want meaning and you place your desire for meaning on, on this identity called politics in essence, right? And politics was not erected to bear that burden. Politics is not gonna fulfill that. So you get angry because you're demanding things that cannot possibly be given to you through the means that you're seeking them. And my interpretation is of course, the, the, the collapse of the institutions, you know, family and so particularly religion, but also community, that's part of the crisis of authority I've been talking about. And um, now this Zoomer generation seems to be the one that was born with, with a cell phone in their hands. Yeah. So they're the most digitized. So their idea of human contact is very different than of an old person like me. This is human contact, right? No, 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 no. Human contact is this, all right? This is human contact. Um, so basically they have, it's a, they're very anxious. I mean, when you look at the, yeah. I mean, it, I can't say that it's cause and effect because that's almost impossible to say. It's correlation, but the people who had, seem to be more fixated on driving these differences, which is why identity is, we're different. We're this little group, we're that little group, and don't you, conf you know, every border of every identity group is fortified and we will fight to the death so you don't get in, right? The people who believe in this um, seem to be more anxious, more depressed, more suicidal, less independent in many ways. You know, they, they, they have sex later, they drive cars later, they leave home later. So it, it's, a, it's a cluster of things that all go together, I think. But ultimately, the sad part, I guess, is they're polluting politics with, with a demand that can't ever be met. Politics wasn't set up to give you meaning. All right, politics was set up for boring transactions in which some people got some things and some people didn't, all right? And no matter how much you triumph in politics, it's not gonna happen so that you feel like my life is important, right? So uh, a lot of anger then becomes associated, frustration and anger, and then of course you blame it on the system. But I think it, what it has to do, is, as much as anything, has to do with demanding of something that can't give you what you want, which is meaning. So there's so much to unpack there and so much that I think resonates with what we're trying to do with this channel, with, with Dad Saves America, because, and, it's, it's, and it's about how do we think about our role as fathers and what can we do to help our kids navigate 
of the world that the revolt of the public is now it now lives in. I have watched as these political issues have be, be, been infused into my son's school at different times, and I've personally taken action against that. I've changed schools in some cases because of um, for him because of the politics getting infused at what I thought was too early in age. So you've talked about a couple different pieces there. I want to sort of dig into to, to them. So one is this generation, the, the Gen Z, you call them Zoomers, which I, I like better than Generation Z. Um, so the Zoomers are the, are the bubble kids. They are the fragile generation. The coddling of the American mind, Jonathan Haidt yes. talks about this at length, and, yes. and I've certainly observed it. I think we all have. Is that a symptom of the information tsunami as a cause? It sounds like in, a, some, in some sense it is. I don't think it's the only one, but that's certainly something that people are talking about, that, that, that they are plugged into the world of every conceivable, negative, crazy, climate change, school shootings, uh, wars in the Middle East. Like they're, they, the backstage is front stage. They're getting hit with the all of it. The chaos is in front, yes. What does that mean for me? as a dad, like, like how you have kids. Yes. Um, how do you talk to your, your sons and your daughter about navigating the information landscape? You're like, they're like, all right, my pop is in the CIA. He studies, he studied the media universe. You know what I do? <laughs> I ask, they know a hell of a lot more about it than I do because <laughs> they're younger. I think the first thing one does not do with one's children is pretend one is what one is not, all right? So, and actually that's, that's a really important thing one does. And I think the first thing I did with my kids is any failing that I knew I had, I boasted of, right? This is me, I'm not perfect, okay? Secondly, for example, in schools and in my house, I was very lucky, my three kids, I, just, I mean, they're smarter than I am, you mm -hmm. know? They, each one of them in different ways, smarter than I am. We had just like a rolling conversation about stuff. Just stuff, right? School, for example, um, I was not, I mean, I'm so thankful that I didn't, didn't experience actual indoctrination, but there was the beginnings of, you need to think this way about this issue, race or, or the civil rights movement or whatever. I had this conversation with Adam. He wrote an article about it. He's a good writer, uh, in which he said, you know, I would tell my dad, this is what I have to study. This is what my teacher said. I said, well, he's wrong, I said. As Adam quotes me. But that's what he wants to hear. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about what I think actually happened there. Well, now let's talk about what your teacher thinks he wants to hear. And you kind of teach the, the, uh, the other person, the younger person, the understanding that there's more than one take on history. My dad thinks this, but my teacher thinks that, okay? So now it's up to Adam to make up his mind what he thinks, okay? And believe me, it wasn't always what I thought, <laughs> which is good. So I... I think there's a rolling conversation that happens that at a certain point when they get a certain age, they become your equals. And there's no way you can say, well, I, you know, I'm your dad, so shut up. That, that's, you've lost, right? So then it's a, why are you saying this? And let me understand. And when it comes to the digital world, I literally grill them. I grill them because they know way more than I do about it in terms of the details of living there. I don't live in that world. I study it. Those are two very different things. So what's it like to be here? What's it like to be there? Isn't that bad? You know, my daughter and I had a conversation about TikTok. I said, you know, China. And she fought back, but in the end she dropped out. <laughs> right? So good for her. You know, so it's give and take. The main thing about the era we live in is that all our weaknesses are exposed. And that's actually 
very true in a family, I think, always. Uh, not necessarily this era, but all eras. But I think what, what one needs to model is authority with flaws. In other words, the understanding that your, your mom and your dad, and it's not just a dad thing, I know this is your thing, but, but honestly, I believe it's a mom and a dad thing. 100%. Yeah, that you have to somehow earn respect even though they understand your flaws. Not because you're perfect, which is basically the politician's, let's call it myth, not to call it a lie. I can, I can solve un unemployment. Uh, I, I, can, I, can, I can solve inequality. You don't want to pose as somebody, I know all the answers. I am your dad, therefore I know all the answers. The, the best thing you can say is, I'm not sure about that, let's go look it up. And I grew up like that and my kids grew up like that. And I don't pose, ever would pose as an ideal family, but I, to this day, my favorite moments in life, enjoy talking to my kids. Rather than have these set piece, son, sit down, I'm gonna tell you about life, that never works. It just never works, because you, you're coming out from nowhere, right? You have to sort of build, build this great big wall-to-wall -wall conversational forum where somewhere in there you're sneaking in, this is what I think about this kind of way of being, <laughs> you know? And then, honestly, um, they can say yes or they can say no. And you have to be that enough to realize that they're not gonna grow up to be you, and that's probably a good thing in many ways, all right? What I always told them was, you know, you're gonna do what I say until you're bigger than me, and then you're cooked. <laughs> you're on your own. <laughs> so you basically have this conversation, and then they're on their own. So it's not like I take credit for it. They should take credit for it. They are wonderful people, right? And I was lucky that they were. My contribution was, I'm a talker. So. Our kids are growing up in the, the, the tsunami has hit and now the water level just keeps rising rapidly. Is there, help me think about how to navigate it with them, not for them, but with them. In the past, I've heard you talk about the importance of sort of media literacy. Yes. And, and, and help me understand that. Give me some like some, some tools here, because I don't know what to tell my son about um, the pursuit of truth in this era. There's so much information. What is true? H help me understand what tools do I have at my disposal to help, help my kids and frankly myself navigate the information tsunami? There are no tools. There really are oh, no, no tools. You're doomed. No. I think it depends on how you look at the, that, that landscape, right? And there's a couple of lenses. And I, and I think, honestly, in a sense, you are doomed. Because I think we need to be taught this from an early age. By the time you get to be an adult, you need to understand these concepts because it, they're not intuitive. The one is the McLuhan concept that it's the structure of information that matters, not the little threads going through it. So the structure is gonna dictate what happens a great deal. Our structure is chaotic. It's that backstage is front stage. And, and that's gonna dictate everything that happens in our, in our system, whether they, you censor this or silence that little thread, it doesn't really matter, it's gonna stay chaotic. The second one is when you get down to the, the level of any given instance, um, trying to understand that everything is information. In other words, what is truth is a very difficult question to answer. But what is a thread? 
of information and why is it being presented? It's an answerable question, right? So suppose there's a piece of fake news, right? Um, you know, it's the election 2016 and it's um, Hillary Clinton is dying of rabies or something, you know, and, and she's hiding it and she keeps passing out because she's got rabies, you know, and there was some kind of not quite that bad, but similar to that on Facebook. Okay, that's information. Who sent that? All right. Why are they, And the most interesting part of fake news is the fake part. Why are they lying about that? What do they think that's going to accomplish? And who do they think is the intended audience? And what do they think that audience is going to do with that piece of information? So you are now, by, by going back upstream from that information, providing yourself, this is propaganda analysis, right? You, you, you're providing yourself with a lot of data about this particular thread. Why is this happening? I think we all of us need to have that mindset. Every piece, every, every message, this kind of message has a sender, has an intent, a message, it has uh, an intended receiver, and then an actual receiver. A lot of messages end up completely misreceived, right? So right. you have to kind of learn to understand that truth and falsehood, you know, is what happens between your daily life, where you, I, I'm pretty sure this is a truth table here because I'm touching <laughs> it with my hands, all right? But what you see online is stuff that you need to parse out, why is it there? Why are you seeing this? Who is sending it? And if a lot of stuff comes in a certain given way, that this, uh, this is a powerful sender. Who is this powerful sender? Who's behind it? Who's paying for it? What's, what is the thought of the pay? Do we know who that payer, what he wants, right? So there's a whole thread that you go, and by the end, is there effects? And media has certain effects, but let me tell you, the effects of media are almost never what the, the message senders intend. Almost never. Propaganda is almost never successful. I'm gonna put myself in the shoes of, 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 of a typical American kid. Not my kid, but any kid. And my teacher tells me that we are at risk of extinction because of the climate. And then I go and I Google and I find huge movements talking about how in 12 years we're going to die, we're all going to die. And, and that's scary. So I'm sort of, my like fight or flight's happening. How does my son or, or any, anyone's son or daughter navigate that because like when we talk about these this this revolt of the public one of the things that uh, one of the things that attracts me to, to try and understand grapple with it as a parent is i don't want my kid to go running out in the street burning starbucks because of a desire to have a transcendental experience like that's not a productive thing to do i don't think but it's clearly really alluring to 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 a lot of kids to a lot of young people. They feel this draw that, that there's something wrong. And, 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 and I think some of it goes back to some of these things, these crises that they're presented from a lot of different angles, climate change being one of the big ones right now. So help me. I think, I think actually I would put cause and effect to be completely the opposite. Oh, okay. I think, I think the, these people are, are, are Greta Thunberg, perfect example. She wrote, she, she clearly is somebody who had certain um, 
personality, I don't know what to call them. I mean, she, she forget the words she used, but clearly she was somebody who had no friends, didn't, didn't feel like she had a purpose in life. And then she started the school strike movement against global warming. That is to me something that somebody who has something missing inside of them that they want to latch on to as, okay, a catastrophe. The whole world is just like me, you know? We're all gonna blow up in 12 years. I think anybody who has a strong sense of themselves would do the normal thing, which is say, okay, how is that gonna happen? Don't just tell me it's the end of the world. Tell me what are the stages to get there? Who has been predicting it for how long? How true has it been from then? And where do I fit in that? And you may become a climate change activist, but you're not gonna become Greta Thunberg because you have a sense of, you didn't have a need to fill to begin with. That, that those crazy ideas, those extreme ideas, placing what may be you know, a, a geophysical phenomenon, global warming, into an apocalyptic model, right, of, of the end of the world. You're not going to fall for that. You're going to see it as what it is. It, it's, it's something that's happening on the earth. How do we deal with it? What's the rational way to look at it? I, I think meaning can be had in many different ways, and I am not an expert in that, and I, so I'm not gonna talk about it, but I think the family is a great producer of meaning because there's a lot of affirmation, right? There's a lot of affirmation. And so, you know, you, you, and you have to affirm the things you disagree with sometimes, and sometimes the things you, you, you wish you could force them towards. Um, but in the end, to the extent that the family can be a source of affirmation and meaning to a young person, I think that person's gonna confront all of that in a very different model from the great Thunberg is like, I'm missing something in my life, therefore, hooray, there's gonna be an end of the world, and I'm gonna be the Joan of Arc of the end of the world. I mean, that's such an important big guardrail against getting sucked into nihilism. Yes. Is there other things that strike you as being important in, in, in you know, armor? You know, I don't know whether to say, I don't know what the metaphor is for the, you know, it might be a diving suit in the, in the, in the tsunami. <laughs> so you can breathe while you're under, under the water. But um, are there other things that, uh, you know, we, we can consciously do to, to yeah, deal with I, this? I think what you need is a really, really big surfboard. <laughs> you can't wear armor, you, you can sink to the bottom. You can't wear a suit, you just gotta roll around. You need to be able to surf it. And, I, yes, I don't have a, a cosmic answer because it's such a complicated landscape, but you, every one of us in the end finds sources that they find credible. You know, I have people like Barry Weiss that I find very credible, and I can name you a few others. So you start by building an informational world around people that in the past you have felt, you know, had integrity and, uh, and were articulate and more or less presented a, a picture of reality that seemed to coincide with what you understood to be the case. And then you can, it's always good to have others that, that are kind of over here ranting and raving and you kind of look at them and go, so is there anything to that? There's a little bit of um, inoculation that needs to happen. In other words, you can't keep people away from crazy, crazy messages online because 90% of them are crazy, right? In some <laughs> sense, in some sense, right? Even if it's only the tone is crazy, even if the content, you know, the actual substance is not. So you need to be able to navigate through the crazy to the substance. Uh, and if you have cer certain anchors that help you do that, you know, the, the, the Barry Weisses of the world, uh, then you can venture out, you know, into the, the more turbulent areas 
and you can you at least have a point of reference. But you need always a point of reference. And the only way you have a point of reference is with an authority that you trust. I trust Barry Weiss. She is an authority to me, okay? So she has authority. She has what the, what the old institutions have lost. Um, and you need to find people like that. That's, that's, it's as simple as that. How do I help my kids understand how to validate their sources of authority? Because this is one of the things that, so that is, I think, the hardest thing because we have confirmation bias. Yeah. So, oh, you see the world in a way that's similar values-wise or, or ideologically to the way I see the world, and so you're a valid source. And before you know it, I'm in an echo chamber that involves yeah. like, I mean, I, you can kind of see the spiral that happens on the left and the yeah. right with, yeah, yeah. oh, suddenly uh, there's, you know, you're, you're in conspiracy theory land on the left and the right. Like they both collapse into sort of radical weirdo conspiracies where, you know, you've got QAnon on one side and you've got like this wacky identity stuff on the other that gets completely bizarre. That's the second part of what I wish um, kids would be exposed to in the, um, in the educational system, which is what I call analysis. I consider myself an analyst, and I define that very simply. What you described is the perspectival problem. The perspectival problem is a real, real issue because, as I always say, if you're on top of the Empire State Building and you're looking at New York City, it looks, it looks like the city of God. If you're down at the bottom of the Empire States and there's fumes choking you and there's probably a homeless person, you know, getting in your way, it looks like, you know, the, the, the first circle of hell, right, or lower. Um, so, but it's the same New York City. It's all about perspective, okay? So if you are Osama bin Laden, for example, in my experience, and if you're a CIA analyst in another experience, you have very, very different perspectives. To try and analyze Osama bin Laden for the perspective of a CIA analyst is wrong. You have to circle around and ask yourself, how does this guy see the world? What is his perspective? What has he written? What, what do his writings tell you about his framework for doing these horrible crimes, all right? Does he think of himself as being a bad person? No, he thinks he's a hero, all right? How can you murder thousands and think of yourself as a hero? Well, it's right there. I mean, he, he explains. So I think we all need to realize that every, every message should be looked, and that's how you do the propaganda analysis, of course, should be looked from every possible perspective. Unfortunately, we're limited humans. None of us can see everything. There'll be God. Only God can see everything from every perspective, right? Um, but as human beings, we can stretch beyond our own perspective. And actually, if your imagination gets a little limber, you can go pretty far. So why are they saying these terrible things? Why are they saying these stupid lies? Why are they telling me that the world's gonna end? Well, analyze it from not just the Greta Thunberg perspective or the opponent's perspective, um, the science, certain scientists or other scientists' perspective, and you kind of come to a rounded idea, and then, honestly, in the end, then it's you, and you make a call, and you have to make an analytic choice, an analytic judgment. That is the way that the, the, I think the, mind, the human mind works at its peak. Right, um, and it's it's what you know you try to do with every piece of information, almost instinctively. If you're an analyst, I think this is like 
incredible advice for everybody, I, I could certainly do this more frequently, is actually consciously seek to put yourself in the shoes of the different players. Don't ever think that the person that you radically disagree with is a bad, foolish person. Think, how can I, because it's inconceivable sometimes to you, right? There's, you can't imagine why they're saying this other than being bad and foolish. So how can you square that circle? How can I say those things and seem like I'm a logical, rational person to myself? You can then still go back and say, of course, I still disagree, but now you understand the causes. And by the way, if you're in dispute with this person, you have a massive advantage, all right? That's the reason for understanding how Bin Laden thinks. It's not because I love Bin Laden, because if you're in dispute with his way of thinking, you have to understand what that is. All right, so if you are in dispute with somebody, just kind of spewing your side, then you get into this internet thing where it, it's, it's, a, it's a contest of aligning people behind you who are already on your side versus actually trying to cross the boundary to the other side and say, well, have you thought of this? Um, it doesn't happen much, but you can at least understand that person and you get a human idea that, you know, even the worst terrorist doesn't think of himself as a villain, as a bad guy in the movies, which is what they tend to be in the United States of America. They think of themselves as heroes. How can that be? And you can fight them much more effectively by understanding how they think of themselves if you can point out that in their own context, they were not very heroic, right? It's part of understanding. It's part of whatever you want to put forward as your own vision of, of whatever message you're talking about, whatever issue. And in the end, it's as close to truth as we get. And like I say, God's truth is universal perspective, right? Every per possible perspective. We humans never can achieve that. So in a sense, we never can get at that kind of truth. But we can, we can get beyond our own little narrow, I'm at the top of the Empire State Building, and by God, I'm saying it's like the heavenly city. Or no, I'm at the bottom, it's like hell, you know? And it's the same city, different perspectives. Something we haven't talked about, but that we've circled around mm -hmm. is, I'm just gonna say faith. Mm -hmm. because the nihilism that's at, at work and that's unifying these different publics that revolt, the sort of empty hole that's being filled by identity politics and this, this cultish identity stuff, it all feels like it's kind of like secular religions. It's, it's, this, it's this, I need to feel like I'm part of a transcendental thing so that I can situate my life in the world. And that's, you said it, you said that this is something that religion has always played an important role in for people. And in the, certainly in the West, relig, formal organized religion and participation in it is on the decline. In the United States, alongside of that is fatherhood is in the decline, the family is in the decline. How do you grapple with that? How do you think about these other, so you have this tsunami of information and then you have this decline in these transcendental institutions as well as the material ones like government and corporations and universities and science. How do you navigate that? How do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, that's a big question. Uh, all, all I can tell you is I am not a religious person, but I, I, I'm a believer that there, every human being has been constructed with a need for the transcendental, 
all right? And that's the word you use, and I, I firmly believe that. We, we are a suffering animal, all right? And we ought not mistake ourselves about that. And to compensate for that or to, to, or to somehow justify that, we need something that is beyond ourselves. And I mean, in the simplest terms, it has been shown that people who are obsessed with themselves are miserable. And people who have concerns with others, you know, church groups, for example, is, is a good, the church, people who go to church in every happiness survey do better than people who don't, all right? Yeah. And I think it's because there's a transcendental um, uh, sort of justification of whatever is happening in your life that is not perfect. You, you are, you're leaving that behind for something greater. You know, you always look for what hasn't happened. That's one of the hardest things for analysts to do, right? The dog that doesn't bark. Here's something that hasn't happened. There, has, there have been all these innovations in all these uh, fields, right? I mean, you can start with, with communications, but of course, you know, computing, medicine, everything in my old age is so different and so transformed from what it was in my youth. Religion is the same. Religion has not been transformed. There is a digital revolution waiting to happen in that field that hasn't happened yet, all right? Uh, I don't know what form it's gonna take. I don't know if it's going to happen because sometimes, you know, it doesn't happen. But I feel like there is a radical change to come in religion and in faith and in transcendental, in presenting transcendental ideas that for whatever reason has not happened yet. You look at the, the data on the Zoomers, the, that youngest generation, they do not go to church. No. But they all, large majorities of them say that they have spiritual longings, all right? And um, many of them, and I know some, uh, have told me that they pray, all right? Um, and I'm not even sure who to, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but they pray. And, 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 and I think it's because they're reaching out for that, that, that transcendental feeling, that sense of beyond themselves. The Zoomers may not be who we think they are, by the way. Okay, let's start with that. The Zoomers are being defined by the, the, the loudest, and that was true of my generation, the Boomers as well, okay? But when you get deeper into it, you see all that anxiety and, and, and concern, and basically they keep their mouth shut because they don't want to get canceled, right? So the Zoomer, and there is a spirituality underneath all of that. So the Zoomers are a big mystery. I'm not gonna say that I know who they are. I think we don't know what they are yet. So there's a potential, I think, for that transcendental feeling to manifest itself in, in as different a way uh, as, for example, Walter Cronkite and Facebook, very different ways of communicating ideas. And, and I keep happening, I keep waiting, keep waiting for something like that to happen. May not happen in my lifetime, but always watch for, for the dog that doesn't bark because that's an unusual thing. I think one way you could interpret the revolt of the public is that these, these movements are the, at least the first new attempt to sell this a transcendental product to this to a generation that wants to buy one and has and isn't picking up isn't joining the Catholic Church or or or, or going to synagogue or uh, that that it's actually um, that it is secular religion. 
that that go, taking to the streets so that I can be, uh, you know, chanting in harmony is is just secular religion. Identity politics, same thing. Secular religion. Yeah, identity politics for sure. I think in the the street protests, there's definitely an element of that, right? And it seemed progressively to become more so as time has gone on. You look from Terrier Square to whatever the weird crowd was on January 6th. Um, I mean, QAnon is kind of like a secular religion, right? So, I mean, it's a, the weird, but there you have it. Unfortunately, when the, when, when the wise people and the elites abdicate, you get crazy people filling that niche, and that's what QAnon is. It's this crazy person basically exploiting probably, who knows, you know, I mean, there are conventions and conferences. Somebody's also making money out of this. Um, but in any case, certainly a lot of attention being given to this person as if they were a prophet of God, right? There's, there's a transcendentalism is what's involved in that. And there is kind of like an eschatological approach to it. Is we are facing the apocalypse, end of days. Things are going to change. That was supposed to be January 6th. So unfortunately, we have them. We need somebody who can actually meet that need with, with a truly spiritual you know, message, right? Truly spiritual. I mean, QAnon is, is just crazy. But he's aiming and hitting those people who want transcendental experiences, transcendental justification. And there's- So is Ibram Kendi and Robin yeah. DiAngelo and- I don't know that those people, anybody ever pays any attention to, honestly. <laughs> Outside the New, York, New Yorker uh, yeah, there's crowd? A, there's about maybe 5,000 elite persons who read those, those and, and, and then companies that pay them to come and talk just as, you know, as basically protection money. I think that the, the true cult of identity, that the, you know, let's scour the internet for somebody who has said a bad word of identity and then destroy that person, attack them and destroy them in some way. I, I think that is that, that is that. But those guys up at the top who are just spouting nonsense, in my opinion, these are people who are cashing in. Now, they may be sincere or not, but they're cashing in. Whereas the people at the bottom, the people who are doing the, the, the true attack dogs of identity, they, they mean it. I'll end our conversation on this. Are you an optimistic person or a pessimistic person and why? Because like your book falls into a, 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 like a kind of new canon for me. The book that I think it's closest to of, in a, in, of a kind is, is The Coming Apart by Charles Murray. And that book suffers in a way from the same dilemma as yours which is I come away from it feeling like I understand what's going on a lot better, and I'm deeply worried <laughs> about where we're headed and I don't see an answer. Have you gotten sucked into nihilism or do you have hope? I don't think you can live without hope, all right? I, I, I have been portrayed as sort of like Dr. Death, you know, uh, and, and in a way I kind of am in that whenever something horrible happens, book sales go up. You know, I have, I have blood on my hands. I mean, no, I'm not kidding. But if you ask me whether I'm an optimist or a pessimist, I, I've been asked that a lot too. I'm a short-term pessimist. I think we are engaged in the very early stages of this, this cosmic, this, this fundamental transformation that, uh, it's gonna take us from the industrial age to something that doesn't even have a name yet. I'm not gonna see the end of that one, right? I, this thing is gonna last longer than me. So in that regard, the chaos is going to outlast me, short-term pessimist. I'm a long-term optimist for many reasons. 
The one being, here we are peacefully discussing all these questions, and I'm looking outside, and there's people walking around the streets, and the streets are very tidy, and the cars are obeying the laws. And there is a, a, a small world that we all live in that comprises all the people we know that tends to be fairly orderly. And it is orderly because society is a lot more orderly than it seems from all the chaos and noise that this transformation has brought upon us. A lot of that happens to be at the top uh, and, and certain specific eruptions, moments, and then places where no question it's chaos. But our everyday life is not like that. And finally, okay, I'm an immigrant, all right? And I have faith in the American people. I think it's undergoing a psychotic episode right now. We all have, we all have our nervous breakdowns now and then. And I think we're, we're, we're in one at the moment. But fundamentally, the American people are fair, are sound, and are strong in the sense of understanding that you can't tear down things if you don't want to put something in their place. And I don't think, I mean, there's maybe some of that happens, but I don't think fundam fundamentally, I don't think it's gonna, it, it's going to erode our democratic system. I am not a prophet. You should be concerned. There are many, many gates we have to get through to get democracy at the end of this transformation. And that's my hope, is that at the end of it, it will be there. So yeah, be concerned. But I'm an optimist. Long term, I think, I think the American people can get there. Maybe some countries will, some, some countries won't. I believe this country will get there. I can't think of a better place to end our conversation. Thank you, Martin. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica.